0: how good it is to be back here at Redeemer. Uh, We love coming to worship here. I love the acoustics in this place. Um, Always makes me preach louder than I think I normally do. Um, So it's great to be with you. We are so grateful for you and your partnership with us in Peru all these years. Uh, I look forward to getting to visit with as many of you as possible after the service. Um, I don't know how many of you will have heard of of these studies or not, but back in the 60s and 70s, early 70s, a social science researcher named John Calhoun did some studies that were published in Scientific American. Uh, They came to be known as the rat utopia experiments. Uh, John Calhoun set out to develop a colony of rats that would have everything that a rat's little heart could possibly desire. These were, uh, this was to be a colony without any predators, without any diseases. They were to have all of the food and drink that they their heart could desire. They were allowed to breed and mate freely. They... Uh, they had games. You know how the rat games are. They had the most amazing of all rat games. And so you would think that with a situation like that, these rats would prosper and just live happily ever after. But in fact, that's not what happened. Well, for a little while they prospered. But it didn't take very long until these rat colonies became extremely pathological. These rat colonies... Uh, they, many of them stopped eating many of the rats stopped eating and starved to death many of them stopped breeding many of them became violent and started to maim and kill their fellow rats uh, many of them engaged in self-harm and so they'd chew their foot off or chew their leg off um, basically they, they devolved into every kind of rat pathology that you can imagine now, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that something very much like that rat utopia experiment is what's happening in, I, I would say, the Western world today, but really any city of over a million people, wherever it is in the world, they've got the Internet. They, they are part of the Western world, and they are facing this, this very issue. We face it in, in Peru it started in the, in the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. It picked up steam in the 1950s. But then by the mid-2000s, just when Christian sociologists and Christian missions experts started telling us that it wasn't happening, nothing to see here, just move along, everything's fine, at precisely that moment, it just exploded on the scene. Now, what I'm referring to here is what the sociologists call secularization. And it involves a thinning out of human relationships, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, with the world around us. But more precisely, it involves a loss of a sense of our own story, of who we are, what our identity is, and what is our story. It it involves a loss of a sense that our story is actually going anywhere or that the world story is actually going anywhere. And we find people just plunged into despair because they don't know what the meaning of life is or what the meaning of their life is. Here are a few of the, the symptoms of this. I, I hate sermons that start off with a list of all kinds of bad, negative, sad things, but here we go. Um, <laughs> Almost a year ago this month, the CDC declared a state of emergency in the United States for adolescent and young adult mental health. And almost every week since then, we have another article, another study that comes out to tell us how bad things are for adolescent and young adult mental health, and even some old adults too. We hear all the time about the suicide rate, the drug abuse rate, the drug overdose death rates that are now currently higher than they have ever been in the history of the world. Then we've got things like gender dysphoria. You've probably heard of this. Gender dysphoria is when one is born a certain sex but they become very uncomfortable with that and they begin to think of themselves as the opposite sex. Now that's not anything new. It's been around forever and we've even been studying it. We've got hard data on this for at least 100 years so there's nothing new about this, but one part of it is new. There's been a massive explosion of gender dysphoria among teenage girls. Almost, almost uh, complete, but, but previous to this, it was almost entirely among boys, not girls. But now, what's going on? Something is different. Then we've got things like plummeting marriage rates and birth rates, uh, which is, projected to have catastrophic social and economic effects across the world. Uh, In Japan now, they sell more adult diapers than they do baby diapers. It's worse than that in South Korea. It's far worse than that in China and in Russia and, of course, uh, uh, Germany and and large parts of, of Europe are in the midst of this as well. And then, of course, just one last one that I'll mention. Uh, this is accompanied also by a deep religious decline across the, the Western world. I don't remember exactly what the numbers are, but it's something like in the United States, it's something like we close five churches for every one new church that we plant. All of that and a whole bunch more that, that uh, we won't get into. Let me try to give you a, a technical definition of secularization. I underline technical, scientific definition here. Secularization is a psychological parasite that bores a hole in your skull and eats your brain. <laughs> but it doesn't eat your whole brain. It just eats the part of your brain, or we could say your soul that enables you to project into the future and think about the future and think about goals and purpose and meaning. It's the part of your soul that gives you hope. And that's what secularization is is eating uh, out of the soul of our world today. Well, somebody might say, well, preacher, no need to get hysterical about it. Um, you're just worked up because you're a preacher and a missionary. Well, yes, I am concerned about the demographic collapse of the church and, as we say in Spanish, ojo, uh, notice this, it's happening in the PCA in a big way as well. But I'm also concerned about it just as a human being because all of this stuff is bringing about massive amounts, vast amounts of real human suffering in this world. Thankfully, you'll be glad to know, Jesus gives us in this text, He gives us the solution. He gives us hope. He tells us what the answer is to this. Here in this passage, He is giving us the Great Commission. He has already died for our sins and made atonement. Now He is risen from the dead and now He is sending us out to the world. And what He's conveying to us here is that the gospel not only takes away our guilt, it not only reconciles us to God, but it also gives us hope and it plugs us into a story. Think of a great epic saga. Think of... Lord of the Rings or something like that, but where Jesus himself is the hero of this big epic saga. What Jesus is telling us here in this great commission, he's saying, listen, you are I, by being united to me, you are being, being united to this huge, vast epic saga. It's a glorious story. It's a story that, of course, promises no little amount of suffering and and sometimes anguish and pain and hardship and difficulties and struggles, but it also promises satisfaction, human satisfaction, freedom, and exquisite eternal joy. Jesus is calling us as his church he's calling us to be a part of that great epic saga. Now, what I want to do this morning is I'm going to try to take a running start at this passage and try to set the context in Matthew's gospel as a whole so that we see where it's going and then I want to try to convince you that there that we can if we listen, if we if we have our ears open, we can hear echoes of particularly three stories In the the Great Commission, there's a lot more than that that we could look at, but I want you to see with me three particular Old Testament stories that make up certain chapters or certain parts of or certain aspects of this great big epic saga that Jesus is inviting us to be a part of. But first, let's set the context here within the gospel. This is not the only baptism passage in the Gospel of Matthew. It is the the passage that talks about Christian baptism, our baptism. But it's connected to the earlier passage in Matthew chapter 3, which is the baptism of Jesus Himself. And you know the story. Jesus comes to John the Baptist. Uh, John is baptizing in the Jordan. And so Jesus comes to him to be baptized. And as Jesus is standing in the water, there is a voice from heaven. The Father says, This is my Son, my Beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descends over him in the form of a dove. And then we're told... I like the way Mark's Gospel puts it, the heavens were ripped open. The same word for ripping the veil of the temple. The heavens were ripped open. And what's going on here, there's no time to hit the details, but but this is Jesus' anointing as prophet. There's something going on with John the Baptist where John is an Elijah figure, Jesus is the Elisha figure matching John. So Jesus is being anointed as prophet He is also being anointed as king, the allusion there when he says, this is my beloved son, that's an allusion to Psalm 2, the great messianic prophecy about the Davidic king as God's son, adopted as God's son, it's it's kingly language. This is not his crowning uh, as king yet, that will happen after the resurrection but this is His anointing as king. And then the third thing is He is being ordained as a priest. And that's why we get the language about the heavens being ripped open because He's the true priest, not like those in Jerusalem. He's the true priest who gives us access to God. So with all of that in mind, then we land in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is the story of His temptation. That's where Satan comes to Him. Satan has heard those words This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Satan has heard those words and he comes to Jesus and he says, Well, if you're really the Son of God, then command these stones to be made bread. If you're really the Son of God, then cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and everyone will say, Wow. And then, of course, Jesus dispatches those attacks But then the third temptation, is Satan comes to him and no longer is he challenging the idea of Jesus' sonship, but now what he's challenging is the idea that the father really loves him. Basically, he says to Jesus, yeah, we, we heard those words. We heard him say that you are the beloved son, but what kind of a father would send his son to a Roman cross? What kind of a father would would claim to love him and then send him to the Roman cross? Back in Psalm 2, the promise to the son, the beloved son, is that he must inherit all of the nations as his inheritance and, and as his possession. The ends of the earth, the kingdoms of the world must become his, but Satan says, look, What kind of a loving father would say, yeah, you can get your inheritance, but you've got to die a miserable death first. That's not love. Come with me. Come with me and I will give you all of the nations of the earth, all of the kingdoms of the earth, the same things that your father promised you, I'll give them to you the easy way. Come and worship me. And Jesus, of course, says, get away from me, Satan. And then Jesus sets His face. I love the way Luke's Gospel talks about it. He set His face to go to Jerusalem. He set His face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. What was it that made Jesus so resilient, so bold, so courageous, where nothing could deter Him from pressing on towards, his, towards the mark, pressing on towards the goal, pressing on to the fulfillment of His calling. What was it that made Jesus so resilient? We need some of that resilience I would think. Our world needs some of that resilience. Well Jesus knew who He was. The baptism passage is all about Jesus' identity. But connected with identity is the idea of His mission, His vocation. You can't have an identity without having a vocation. And so the baptism passage highlights for us the great epic saga of which Jesus is the hero. And then when we go through the rest of the Gospels, Jesus, knowing who He is, knowing who His Father is, knowing that He's the hero in God's great story, and He knows that He cannot fail, He can face down any enemy He can face down any difficulty. He goes before the Sanhedrin. He goes before the high priest and Pontius Pilate. He faces all of those in the the Garden of Gethsemane. He faces down the devil for one last time. And yet, he's still resolute, and he goes to the cross. And then in chapter 28, our passage here. Here in this passage, on the other side of the cross... On the other side of the resurrection, he makes this proclamation about himself. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I now hold in my hand title to all of the kingdoms of the earth. They're all mine. And I am enlisting you to come with me, to join with me in this great epic saga. And we are going to see the nations restored we're going to see God become all in all. We will see Jesus acknowledged as the true King of heaven and earth. So with that in mind then, let me try to identify for you three key stories from the Old Testament that we have to understand so that we can get the full flavor of the Great Commission. First of all, notice here That Jesus is describing himself or claiming for himself that he is the new Adam in God's new creation. He is the new Adam in God's new creation. Now, in a sense, this is, we can find this, see this right on the surface of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, starts off, this is almost like the title for the whole work. "...the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David." That phrase, the book of the Genesis of, where does that come from? That's a direct quote from the book of Genesis. That actually is repeated ten times in Genesis. It, it forms the part of the literary backbone to the book of Genesis. And so Matthew is, is, is telling us from the very beginning, he says, look... This story that I'm about to tell you about this man named Jesus, this is a story about a new Genesis. This is about a new beginning. This is a story about a new creation. So let me tell you this story. And then we get to the end of the Gospel and how does He wrap it all up? Jesus refers to the power or the authority that He has just now received. Now notice... Uh, little parentheses here, this is not talking about His authority as the second person of the Trinity. He is the second person of the Trinity, but this authority is an authority that He has just now received on the basis of His resurrection. This is His authority as the new Adam in God's new creation. Remember back in Genesis chapter 1, God created Adam and Eve in His image and likeness and He he said to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, and have dominion over it. What do we call a person who has dominion over an entire realm? We call him a king, right? Well, that's, that's what God was saying about Adam. Adam was created to be a king. He was created to wear a crown. Satan, of course, comes and steals his crown, but Jesus has now taken the crown back and on the basis of His resurrection Jesus says, I am God's new Adam in His new creation and therefore since I hold title to all the kingdoms of the earth, I'm charging you, my apostles, my church to go out and proclaim my gospel to reclaim these nations. There's a whole bunch more I I wish I had time to to talk about here. Um, Makes me think I'll just say this, makes me think of of Abraham Kuyper's phrase that there's not one square inch over all of God's creation over which Jesus does not say, mine. So he is the new Adam in God's new creation. But then secondly, we should also hear, if we put our ears down close to the text, you can hear echoes. From Joshua chapter one. Jesus is claiming to be not just a new Adam in God's new creation, he's claiming to be a new Joshua for the restoration of God's holy land, God's holy sanctuary. Remember back in chapter one how Matthew introduced Jesus? Uh, the angel says, You shall call his name Jesus because he will, for he will save his people from their sins. The Greek name Jesus is just the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. That's right. So from the very beginning, Matthew is saying, Listen, I'm going to tell you a story about a new Joshua. Joshua who was born in Nazareth. Let me tell you this story. Now remember, who was Joshua in the Old Testament? Joshua was Moses' assistant, the, The book of Joshua begins just after Moses had died. He gathered all of the people of Israel on the east bank of the Jordan River, right where John was baptizing. He gathers them there. He preaches the whole book of Deuteronomy to them. He's preparing them to go in to take possession of their land. And that's where, after Moses dies, God speaks to Israel, the armies of Israel, before they go in to take possession He speaks to them through Joshua. And one of the things that he emphasizes in the first nine verses of chapter one, as he gives them this commission, he says, be strong and courageous, be bold and courageous, do not fear. And that's a refrain that goes all the way through that section. Do not fear, do not fear, do not be afraid. In other words, it doesn't matter if the giants are, uh, you know, all the way up to heaven. It doesn't matter if the walls of the city are as high as the heavens. It doesn't matter if we feel like little grasshoppers in front of them. I will be with you, he says, and therefore you do not need to fear. That phrase that's given as the the whole basis for Israel's courage, boldness, lack of fear, that phrase is repeated and quoted right here. Why is it that we need not fear the giants? Why is it that we need not fear the, wall, the cities that are walled up to heaven? Why is it that we need not feel like little grasshoppers in front of these giants? Because Jesus promises to be with us. A, a guarantee that the commission can be and will be accomplished. Then there's a third story that we should hear here in this passage... And this one perhaps is not quite as obvious, but this is that Jesus presents himself or claims to be a new Cyrus bringing an end to the exile. You say, Cyrus? Okay, you, you had me until that, Pastor. Where in the world are you getting this? Well, remember, Cyrus was a Gentile. Cyrus was the king of Persia or the emperor of the Persian Empire, he's the one who conquered the Babylonians. But remember, Isaiah in chapter 44 and chapter 45, Isaiah prophesies a lengthy prophecy about this man named Cyrus. And he gave the prophecy 200 years before Cyrus was even born. And he says about Cyrus that Cyrus would be the servant of the Lord, that he would conquer the enemy who was holding God's people captive. He would release the captives, set the exiles free, and send them back to build God's city. And not only is he the servant of the Lord to do this, Isaiah even refers to him as the Messiah, the Christ of the Lord. Now, he's, that would be Messiah with a little M. He's not the, the true Messiah, and he doesn't liberate us from the true exile the real exile is our exile from the garden of eden but what's going on here is that jesus is presenting himself he's claiming to be something like cyrus but a whole lot greater remember in in jeremiah chapter 29 jeremiah lived as the exiles were being carted away to babylon and they were carted away in a couple of different uh, at a couple of different times and there were some of the exiles who were not about to... They, they did not want to stay in Babylon. They wanted to, to break free, go back to Jerusalem, and get to work rebuilding. But Jeremiah writes a letter to them in chapter 29. He writes a letter to these exiles in Babylon. And he says, no, it's not time to build right now. It's time for you to be patient Marry a wife, raise kids, keep your head down, have a low profile in the city of Babylon. Don't cause any trouble. Pray for the peace of the city and wait. Wait and be patient. Then at the end of the 70 years, in the very last book of the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament isn't Malachi. In the Hebrew Bible, the last book is 2 Chronicles. So what do we find in the last verse of the last chapter of the last book of the whole Old Testament? We find Cyrus. Cyrus has just conquered Babylon. He has set the exiles free and he says, the king of heaven and earth has given all authority to me and now I am charging you to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and rebuild my temple. Now When Jesus, basically those words are almost quoted word for word here in the Great Commission, but when when Jesus quotes those words or when He he takes those words upon His lips, He's claiming something about Himself. He's saying, I'm the new but much greater Cyrus, setting setting free the exiles, but not just the exiles to Babylon, the exiles from the Garden of Eden. And whereas previously, per... Jeremiah's letter it was not time to build now the exiles over now it's time to build now it's time to go forth in mission now it's time to build the city of God rebuild the city of God in the world a whole lot more I'd like to say about that you'll have to invite me back for another time though (laughs) now here's what all this means our baptism in this text engrafts us into Jesus's baptism In a certain sense we can say that there's not really a bunch of Christian baptisms, plural. There's only one Christian baptism. That's Jesus' baptism. Every time we are baptized into Christ, we are baptized into His baptism. We are united or engrafted into His baptism and all that it means. It means that we are given His identity. It means that we're given His story. It means that we're given His mission. It means that we're given His vocation. One of the things that I hear from young people all the time, I hear this in Peru, I hear this in the United States as well, and I bet you have heard it too, I hear young people say all the time, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I don't know what God wants from me. I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know why God even has me here on this earth. Have you heard anyone say something like that? That's what's going on in our world today. Well, if you have been baptized into Christ, if you are trusting in Him, then you have been inserted into His identity. And therefore, just like He heard the Father say, You are my Son. I love you. I am well pleased with you. You should hear those words ringing in your ears. But not just that. In the same way that He is the great hero of this epic saga, He's calling you and me to participate with Him. And so whatever your particular vocation is, you can only understand that vocation when you understand it in Christ. What does your vocation as an accountant, a lawyer, a carpenter, or whatever, what does your vocation have to do with Jesus' vocation? I am convinced that the single greatest pastoral and parental task that we have in our day, it's helping our people our children, and our church members helping our people discern and develop their sense of vocation and life purpose. Helping them to see how they are called to find their identity and their vocation and the meaning of their life in Christ and in this great epic saga. Now, the Great Commission calls us to inhabit Jesus' story All of these individual stories, we need to learn how to see those as our stories and and as part of this one big story. Embracing our mission today means letting these stories shape us as individuals, shape our marriages, our families, and our churches, inhabiting Jesus' great epic saga, making, making our own life fit with the grooves of the universe, so that everything comes into context and everything begins to make sense. So what is it will, that will save all of these folks that we've, I've been talking about? What is it will save our marriages, our children, our cities, our world? Learning to inhabit the Great Commission in this way. It's urgent, not just because it will increase the demographic profile of our, of our religious club, it's urgent because it's the only thing that will draw the world up out of our nihilistic, pathological death spiral. So do you want to save yourself? Do you want to save your marriage? Do you want to save your kids? Do you want to save your city? Then the answer is, join the mission. Join Jesus' mission. Unite yourself In this great epic saga of how Jesus is saving the world, let's pray. Holy Father, how awesome and amazing it is to think about what you have planned from before the foundation of the world and to think of how you are fulfilling that plan even now, how Jesus is guiding and directing that great story. Help us, O Lord to be a part of that story, to join with Jesus, to hear His identity, the the words that announced His identity be announced to us as well. Help us in these things, O Lord. Bless Your church. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.